0: So, this evening, I'd like to have a close look at this rather um, well known, but I think somewhat confusing word, Zen. It's used and has been used now in our culture for quite some time, and it's taken on a meaning all rather of its own, some of which is quite legitimate but some of which is rather questionable. Martin gave an example of how in France nowadays you are supposed to rester zen, but um, to me that's rather a ghastly trivialization of something. The term also has taken on a kind of aesthetic property. If you talk about something as having a, a zen style, uh, a Zen aesthetic, i.e. I, what well, that usually means is is a Japanese aesthetic. It means, you know, nice, sharp, white and black lines, rather minimalist, with occasionally a bit of natural pine throw, showing through or something like that. <laughs> and um, this is considered to be terribly Zen, or rock gardens, or 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 moss gardens and things like that, which are not intrinsically Zen at all. It's part of Chinese-Japanese aesthetics. And I think an awful lot of confusion thereby has built up around this term. So I'd like to try to clear some of that confusion away, hopefully not introducing further confusions. We will see. If we go back historically to where this tradition began. We have to go back not to Japan, but to China. And China of the early Tang period, that's about 6th, 7th century of our era. And Zen, or Chan, as it is called in Chinese, started life very much as a kind of counter-movement to something else. There was something from the outset about Zen that was somewhat provocative, maybe even iconoclastic, um, and somewhat rebellious, somewhat anarchic. And that meaning has also, I think, come through both the Classical literature of Zen and also some of its popularized uh, versions. There's something quirky and odd, um, enigmatic, um, uh, puzzling, provocative, doesn't make an awful lot of sense that goes with this idea of Zen. And the reason for that, at least in its deepest historical sense, is that When Buddhism came to China and it came from India quite early on in the history of Buddhism around the first century after Christ first, second century you start getting Indian Buddhist monks uh, crossing the Silk Road uh, coming down into China and for a number of historical reasons that I'm not going to go into now Buddhism sort of took on It took off in China. It became something rather attractive to the Chinese. And over the next three, four, five centuries, there was a great deal of translation of Buddhist texts from Sanskrit into Chinese that took place. Chinese monks came to India and studied in the great monastic universities in North India. Indian monks went again and again to China. And one of these was a man called Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma a very shadowy figure historically he probably lived somewhere in the middle of the 6th century and he's considered to be the, the founder of this Chan or this Zen movement but Chan doesn't really come into its own until we get to a man called Hui and Hui is usually called the 6th Patriarch tomorrow morning I'm going to, to speak a bit about him as well But what happened in broader brushstrokes is that as Buddhism came into China, it was the rather orthodox Indian schools of that period, uh, largely because Mahayana Buddhism was really developing in India then, the Chinese tended to pick up on the Mahayana trends, which were quite philosophical. There was a strong uh, Vajrayana or Tantric movement that came into China early on. And they built monasteries and they ordained monks, and they somehow duplicated the way Buddhism was developing in India at that period, which was quite scholarly, uh, quite complicated, uh, quite text-based, and in some sense is very, very rich. Um, enormously complex philosophical ideas were introduced, a whole world view that the Chinese had had no idea of, was suddenly available that stood in quite some contrast to indigenous Chinese ideas. The whole idea of, of, of reincarnation, for example, didn't exist in China until Buddhism brought it along. And as a result, it had an enormous uh, religious and cultural and, and philosophical impact um, throughout China, such that in the Tang period... Buddhism was probably the most dominant and the most powerful uh, system of thought that was uh, operating in that very rich cultural epoch. But at the same time, it remained something foreign. It remained Indian. It wasn't Chinese. And that stigma of foreignness um, has always clung to Buddhism in China. And Zen, or Chan, I'm going to call it Chan, was one of the first movements in which the Chinese, as it were, uh, took Buddhism for themselves on their own terms, in their own language. And much of this was um, informed by the language of Taoism. Now Taoism, I'm sure most of you have read things like the Tao Te Ching and other texts, very, it's a very earthy, uh, uh, very pithy philosophy of life, very much based upon uh, finding a way to live in harmony with what they call the Tao, which really just means uh, the way things are, the natural laws of life. And when, when life gets out of, out of kilter, out of harmony with this natural rhythm of life itself, then things start going horribly wrong. So the Taoist sage is one who recovers a kind of uh, deep uh, harmony and, and sympathy with nature itself. It's, it's what one might call a a nature, a a nature mysticism. But in any case, the point I want to make is that uh, Chan Buddhism, in many ways, is a kind of a, an integration. Of, of native Chinese Taoist ideas with Buddhist, a Buddhist sensibility, Buddhist concepts, a Buddhist frame of reference, but suddenly it doesn't look much like the Indian-based Buddhism that is, as it were, the official church of Buddhism in China at that period. So, Chan is very much the beginning of what we now call Chinese Buddhism. The Chinese made Buddhism their own. And it wasn't the Chinese in some generic sense, but it was a number of rather exceptional and remarkable men um, who suddenly made this leap from simply aping or copying or Uh, or being largely informed by Indian Buddhist ideas, suddenly you get a synthesis of Chinese and Indian ideas. And one of the key things, really, in Chan is that rather than spend a lot of time studying Buddhist literature and Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist texts, the emphasis becomes going back to the primary questions and the primary experiences that Siddhartha Gautama had as he sat beneath that tree and again you can see for the Chinese especially the Taoists the attraction with this image of a tree and a very simple very earthy act of sitting down and that I think is really the the experiential core of what is called chan chan the word itself is actually simply a Chinese homonym. in other words it's a, it's a, it's an uh, an imported and adapted Sanskrit word, jhana or jhana in Pali, which simply means concentration or absorption. And so Chan doesn't actually mean anything uh, other than meditation, really. But again, that's the emphasis. The emphasis is 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 getting back to the primary Um, uh, sitting and looking and asking, as we're saying here, what's going on? What is this? What's happening? And to do so and to express one's insights um, in a language that's not referring back to Buddhist doctrines, but is speaking in ordinary idiomatic language. The language of the ordinary people. And interestingly, although I'm not sure the early Chan teachers were aware of this, that is, of course, one of the breaks with tradition that uh, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, made too. His teaching um, was quite deliberately given, not in the high classical Sanskrit of the Vedas and the Upanishads, but it was given in colloquial Uh, dialects, uh, Prakrit's as they're called technically. In other words the common language of Magadha and Kosala and the different regions of North India where the Buddha taught. So the Buddha too was very much um, against um, speaking a kind of inaccessible priestly language and preferring and, and, and he was really one of the first to do this, to speak in the ordinary idioms of the time. I mean, as we'll see, that didn't always remain like that, but that, I think, is a characteristic, um, not only of Buddhist tradition, but certainly a characteristic of this Chinese um, articulation of what the core of the Buddhist teachings are. And to illustrate that, I'd like to um, give a a concrete example of a a Chinese monk who lived... um, a little bit later than the period we're speaking of, towards the end of the Tang period, probably about the 9th century. And he was a monk who was called Deshan. Now Deshan is not one of the Zen masters you might have heard of, but he's actually quite important. At least he was. And Deshan was one of the traditional Buddhist monks of his period. He specialized in two things. Uh, the, the minutiae of the monastic rule. In other words, he was probably a bit of a legalist. He was very concerned as to what, uh, what con- co- uh, consisted of, of right behavior for a monk and wrong behavior for a monk and punishing and all this kind of stuff. And he was also an authority on one of the classical Indian Mahayana texts called the Diamond Sutra, which is still, of course, very well known today and it then came to his attention uh, one has the impression very much of a a bit of an authoritarian figure uh, a bit of a textual um, expert, a scholar a legalist uh, one bound up with rules and regulations and then he heard that down in the south of China there was a new school called Chan, and Um, This is what his initial reaction to that was. He says, how dare these southern devils say that by pointing at the human mind one can see one's nature and become a Buddha, I'll go drag them from their caves and exterminate their ilk and thus repay the kindness of the Buddha. (laughs) (laughs) Now we know the sort of person we're talking about here, probably. Probably. This is a very typical religious type of person. certainly not exclusive to Buddhism. Uh, we find him everywhere, really, this guy. Now, <laughs> I, will, I will resist giving examples. <laughs> so Li, so uh, then puts his books on his back and he walks down to southern China. And uh, he gets to a town called Li Chao. I don't know where that is. And he um, is uh, hungry and he's thirsty and he sees an old woman sitting by the side of the roadside selling refreshments and uh, he went over to her and she looked at him and she looked at the books and she said I'll only serve you if you can answer my question the Diamond Sutra says past mind can't be grasped Present mind can't be grasped. Future mind can't be grasped. So which mind does the learned monk desire to refresh? (laughs) (laughs) Now that rather stumped poor old Deshan. (laughs) (laughs) But also this story is, um, I think it's also very um, telling, the actual Encounter here. Here we have something which is again a very, um, very much a departure from the norms of tradition. This we have an old woman, and remember that in those days in ancient China and ancient India, old women were not considered to be great authorities on spiritual matters. And as we see in the example, she's presumably a fairly simple woman sitting by the roadside selling things to eat and drink. And yet, this is the person who turns the mind of this great monk, this great learned authoritarian figure, and asks him a question that he can't answer. And so this exposes in Deshan a kind of awareness of the inadequacy of his own own knowledge. And the old woman says, well, maybe you should go and seek out um, a fellow called Lung Dan, who turned out to be precisely one of the Chan teachers that he'd come down to persecute and so um, I won't go the story goes on a bit but in any case he goes to uh, this man Lung Dan and stays with him a while and, Lung, and has an experience of insight and enlightenment with him and then decides and this is the, one of the famous iconic moments in, Ch- in Chinese Chan um, he decides to, um, to burn all his books so he uh, he sets fire to the whole lot. And then he goes off into a long retreat. Um, and it's from the end of this retreat, you know, which is without any books, without any learning, without having lots of monks to boss around, he comes out with a whole other perspective on what life, what his life, is about. And just to give a a taste of the way he taught, I'll just read a couple of examples. Um, A monk comes up to him and asks, what is enlightenment? And Tishan says, get out, don't shit in here. (laughs) And the Buddha asked the same monk, an old Indian beggar, he says. And there's a passage here that he once... uh, as a part of one of his teachings, he says, Here there are no ancestors and no Buddhas. Bodhidharma is a stinking foreigner. Shakyamuni is a dried-up piece of shit. (laughs) Enlightenment and Nirvana are posts to tether donkeys. (laughs) The scriptural canon was written by devils. It's just paper for wiping infected skin boils. (laughs) none of these things will save you, he says. He says, what is known rather grandiosely as realising the mystery, he says, is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. I like that expression. It's nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. Now, I think this story is quite a good illustration of the kind of rupture the kind of break that these monks um, who might have started out as rather orthodox uptight people but they get a sudden revelation a sudden insight that turns their whole world upside down and not just their own their own sense of who they are their own sense of their own reality but also their whole understanding of what the Buddha-Dharma, what the teaching of the Buddha, the practice of Buddhism is. It suddenly becomes something virtually unrecognizable from the rather uh, abstract and precise and philosophical uh, teaching that would have been prevalent at that period. Now what has happened, of course, and I think we can again see this as a pattern that characterizes the development of of many religious movements is something that starts out as as being a radical break with tradition over time and in fact often rather quickly becomes just another tradition and so something that something like zen which was initially very shocking and perhaps as i read some of those passages you might have been slightly shocked too i don't know how how you relate to these things but certainly when I read this kind of stuff um, it does make you sit up a bit I mean are you saying well is this just some sort of rhetorical move I don't think so I think it's more than that I think it really is a radical uh, sweeping away of a lot of dead matter it's a clearing of the path as it were so that for a moment at least we can see things more clearly and if you read the Zen texts, especially the, uh, the early um, writings that come from the Tang period, uh, the, the collections of koans and so on, they're very much infused with this kind of radicality, this um, abrupt, rather um, outrageous, breaking through, in Teshan's words, to grab an ordinary person's Life, And so the, the optimal value, which is not exactly a Zen expression, the, the optimal value that is um, pointed to in Chan is not some remote and somewhat mysterious and distant enlightenment, some omniscient state of being that you might get to after numerous lifetimes of lots of, of, of hard work, but it's actually something right here and now that if you could just open your eyes, if you could just open your heart, if you could just cut through the habits of thinking and thought, would be immediately available and accessible. And that's why Zen speaks of of sudden awakening as opposed to gradual. It's something that is actually very, very close by to who you are. It's even closer to you than your own sense of of I, to paraphrase St. Augustine, which was his definition of God. He said, God is closer to you than your own sense of I. Zen is somewhat like that. There's a beautiful image which says that, um, uh, you know, the deluded person is a bit like a fish who spends his whole life swimming through the ocean looking for water. (laughs) <laughs> it's actually right there. The 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 great truths of Buddhism, you know, now nowadays very much elaborated and raised up on great pedestals, um, are actually uh, something so straightforward and obvious. If only you had the the courage, perhaps, and the willingness to take a risk uh, to actually see them for yourself. I mean, this this is a trend you go. Through many of the writings in different mystical traditions, whether it's Rumi or Meister Eckhart, or I mean, I'm not arguing, I'm not saying necessarily they're talking about exactly the same thing, but in terms of strategy, in terms of style, I think it's very, very close. It's about recognizing that the deepest, most profound truths are actually so so profoundly close to you that you can't see them. That's why they're difficult to understand. Not because they're far away and remote and somehow uh, transcendent, but because they are so profoundly imminent. Because they are actually too close for you to see. Sounds strange, but I think many of us perhaps can grasp what that means. But of course, what happens, and this seems... Um, perhaps inevitable, given the way the world and human beings are are composed and structured, is that this kind of um, vitality, and again, there's definitely a a vitality that comes through these kinds of expressions, very quickly becomes wrapped up and somehow stifled by another kind of orthodoxy. And so strangely... um, if you go to to, to Japan, for example, today, you'll find that Zen Buddhism is a very orthodox, very traditional kind of religious institution. And during the Tokugawa period in Japan, which is like 17th century onwards, uh, it became the state religion. It became the religion of the samurai uh, shoguns. Uh, Zen priests were involved um, in so-called enlightened Zen priests who had such you know, certifications of enlightenment and so on, were involved in the, um, the persecution and the torture of Christian missionaries. Uh, there's a whole other side of Zen once you look at how it has evolved historically and become an institution just as oppressive as all the others with its priesthoods and its hierarchies and its, in its official transmissions of enlightenment which, uh, in many respects, are as much to do with the perpetuation of power and authority as they are to do with the transmission of any genuine insight. So Zen becomes, paradoxically, the very thing, or the very kind of thing, that in its beginnings it rebelled against. I remember, many years ago, being rather shocked when I suddenly realized that the word Protestantism actually included the word protest. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it started out. But I've never thought of it like that. I'd always thought the Protestants, you know, sort of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, apologies to any Protestants. But um, as in, I'm, I'm talking here very much of, the, of the, the kind of sense I had growing up in England in the 19. 19- 50s and 60s, the Protestant Church, the Church of England, did not excite in me any great sense of a protest movement. (laughs) (laughs) I looked elsewhere for that. And yet, of course, Protestantism, in its origins, was as radical as Zen was in its origins. Uh, Luther, who I admire greatly, Was an enormously courageous man with, um, I think, a deep spirituality, and the courage and the willingness to break, with the in in his time, the church. It wasn't. It wasn't just. wasn't one church amongst others. It was the church in Europe, and he posted up his 95 theses to the church door in Württemberg or wherever it was and uh, launched this whole movement of protest where people were encouraged to get rid of all the icons. Again, a very zen kind of thing, if you think about it. Um, <laughs> dispense with any mediation or intercessionary function of priests. Have a direct personal relationship to God. Have access to the Bible in your own language. Again, the same thing. The, it wasn't until Luther that... Um, the Bible was available in the idiomatic languages of, in this case, Germany, but very quickly it followed into other European languages. And yet, of course, it ends up, um, uh, through the the, the the forces of of history and institutionalization and power and alliances with states and so forth and so on, you end up with something that, much like Zen, in Japan and elsewhere in Asia, and even in places here in the West, doesn't has somehow lost the very spark, the very vital force that initiated it. So when we speak of the uh, the spirit of Zen, I don't think it's got anything to do, in fact with the outward form or style or structure or the kinds of practices or texts which are associated with Zen Buddhism or Chan Buddhism. In fact, I think all of that has to go, actually. And what I think lies very much at the spirit of this has got nothing to do with any particular form of Buddhism or any particular form of any other religion, but actually a kind of inward willingness and inward courage to go back to the primary questions of what it means to be alive, of what life is about. It's dispensing with all of the answers, however radical, however um, insightful they might have been at one time in history, and to try to, as it were, experience for yourself, each one of us, the kind of questioning and the kind of insight that Siddhartha Gautama or Hwe Neng or Bodhidharma or Martin Luther or whoever it was experienced for themselves. They were no different from us. They were just, again, as he says, who's the Buddha? An old Indian beggar. Not some grandiose figure with perfect omniscient mind and all this kind of stuff. Just an old guy. It's very difficult for us um, to actually get back to that. In, in the course of the, the, the development of Buddhism, and I, I'm not going to keep giving parallels with Christianity, I don't, but it should be fairly self-evident, we very rapidly lose the historical figure of Siddhartha Gautama. And, we are repla- and it becomes replaced with this, this impossibly perfect man, hardly a man anymore, a kind of a god, who looks sort of weird if you think about it, you know, the long earlobes and all the various signs and the golden skin and the weird head knot and the thing between his eyes. (laughs) 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 This really has nothing to do with the the actual human being, the actual man, uh, Siddhartha Gautama. Um, And this, I feel, is this process of deification, this process of of ossification, institutionalization, this kind of aggrandizement, both of the founder figures, the doctrines, the churches, the communities, and by church I mean community, really. Um, All of that seems inevitably, I mean looking in the course of history, one can almost say inevitably, to over time begin to assume the form of precisely what the founding figures were rebelling against. If you look at the figure of Jesus, you know what he says about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and throwing over the moneylenders' tables in the temple and creating a hell of a fuss. This is an example of a person who's not willing to just go along with the religious um, assumptions of his day. But he's driven, he's motivated by something far more vital, uh, far more um, radical than the institutions of religion are able to tolerate. And again, if you've read Dostoevsky, the brothers Karamazov, and the idea, and the grand inquisitor, and what happens when Jesus suddenly comes back in 19th century Russia, it's an enormous embarrassment. You have to get rid of this guy. And I think it's the same even with these texts. These Zen texts, once they become canonical, uh, once they become, as it were, um, things that you revere, uh, they also become somehow sanctioned, approved. They've got the seal of orthodoxy now on them, and so their shock element inevitably diminishes. And I think it actually—I actually, I, I actually think—we become blinded through the uh, the weight of orthodoxy to the radical nature of these texts. We just don't see that anymore. Let me give you another example. This is from this is from the um, Blue Cliff Record, the Hekigan Roku. Case 63, Nanchuan cut, cuts the cat in two. Some of you might be familiar with this charming story. <laughs> 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 Nanchuan was a... Uh, uh, I think he was an 8th century monk. He was the teacher of the famous Chao Chu or Joshu. Uh, you know, does a dog have a Buddha nature? No. That guy. Nan <laughs> Chuan was his teacher, and he was into cats rather than dogs. One day. <laughs> One day, uh, and this is a very very orthodox text. One day, Nan Chuan saw the monks of the eastern and western halls quarreling over a cat. Again, it's a universal monastic phenomenon. Cat. (laughs) I knew a Christian monk once near here who who used to talk of the senior monastery cat and the junior monastery cat. So, anyway, Nan Chuan, seeing the monks were a arguing about this cat he held it up and said if you can give an answer I will not kill it no one could answer Nan Chuan cut the cat in two now again this is, this is a canonical text it's, I think the shock effect of this is lost when it's stated in this kind of way in this kind of context you think about it, cutting a cat in two is a very messy business. It's, uh, it, it's a really horrible thing to do. It's, very sh- it's incredibly shocking. We couldn't do it here. <laughs> <laughs> We'd go get into serious trouble. But <laughs> well, what I'm trying to point to is that what these men were saying and doing uh, was very, very um, uh, provocative. I mean, it, it, I mean Sol- Solomon threatened to do this, King Solomon with the the baby, but he, he didn't. Luckily, he didn't have to. Nunchuan cuts the cat in two. So, again, another slight example. A lot of Westerners were think, well, he can't really have been like that. Uh, it must be some sort of symbolic way of speaking. I wonder, it's a good question actually, did he actually do that? Did he actually take hold of this poor little animal and get a knife or an axe and chop it in two? I don't know. But the fact that that might be possible and the fact that this tradition honors that episode as something that deserves a place in a very important and classical Zen text suggests that he might, have had, he might have done actually that. We don't know. But the point I'm trying to make, and we can forget about you know, animal rights and so on at this point, is that um, what these people are doing is very radical, very uncompromising. Now this radical and uncompromising nature of one's practice, one might say, cannot be achieved simply by mimicking or copying what ancient Zen masters did. And I find it actually quite, um, well to put it bluntly, rather irritating when uh, I see or meet Western people who are dressed up in Zen robes and who are basically pretending somehow to be Zen Masters, or at least aspiring Zen masters, and going through all of the kind of motions that are somehow expected of them—you know, making enigmatic utterances, shouting, sticking their fist in the sky—as though somehow, if you do these rather quirky things often enough, that will ensure you some kind of insight. Uh, That, to me, is, uh, is 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 incomprehensible. And I think the, as, as much as these traditions have to offer, and after all, we are doing a retreat that is modeled on a traditional Korean style. It's quite traditional in many respects. We're bowing to the Buddha and so on. We're not burning it. The, <laughs> there's always, I think, somewhat of a tension between a certain reverence for tradition, which I have. Um, I honor very much the... Uh, the generations of past men and women who have kept this whole thing alive so that we can practice it and hopefully benefit from it today. But at the same time, there runs this risk of becoming identified or becoming attached to certain forms, certain ways of speaking, uh, certain styles of behavior That, although from the outside they might look as though they're Zen, in fact, are just a bit of an empty shell. And I don't think there's any way around this problem. You can take something like mindfulness or or compassion, which are wonderful things, of course, but it's not too difficult to imagine how they too can become somehow corrupted that mindfulness can become, become a kind of a, a pose or an attitude or a kind of rather precious, slow-moving kind of uh, way of being in the world. You feel terribly mindful. <laughs> but in fact, it's, it's kind of an act. It's kind of a gesture. Uh, or the sort of compassion that um, I often meet amongst Buddhists that is kind of oozing a kind of unctuous. Um, rather, uh, rather syrupy, sentimental kind of feeling. Um, the, 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 the Tibetans actually have a word for this. They call it granny compassion. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that the traditions are unaware of these things. They are. Uh, it's uh, uh, the Tibetans, for example, talk about the sort of guy who or, or woman who, who runs up to the top of a mountain, li- li- lives in a cave on impulse. They call that hairy renunciation. I <laughs> don't quite know why. But they see that you know, just to go through the outward form of these things or to assume a certain expression on your face or, or to, to utter certain platitudes. Or, or to, and a lot of Buddhists have this kind of thing going on. <laughs> There's this sort of knee-jerk bowing that happens as soon as you, you see anything worthy of reverence. and and all of this is really just just a kind of play-acting. But, at the same time, it's not as clear-cut as that. It's ambiguous. It it also allows us access to a tradition, to a community, to a teaching, to a practice, that, over time, perhaps, can have a profound transformative effect on who we are. I don't want to paint this in black and white, If I did, I'd be falling into exactly the same trap. Things are ambiguous. Things are not clear-cut. It's not good or bad or right or wrong. It's always a mix of the two. If only it were straightforward, life would be a lot easier. And I think one has to honour this almost unavoidable um, ambiguity. I found also that when, in in terms of... um, uh, although, although Buddhism is of course the tradition with which I identify myself I, I also find that in many respects I don't find that vitality that, um, uh, that willingness to really as it were say something new to really break with um, the forms of tradition and find one's own voice find one's own form I admit that over time these things will probably emerge but I think there's a great danger as Buddhism comes into our culture that we too readily over identify with certain um, forms and structures that are not really our own they're modified slightly but they're still alien. It's the same problem that Buddhism had in China as I mentioned uh, Buddhism never quite threw off its foreignness; its not being Chinese. Uh, Chan was very much, I think, a, a very good example of of something new, something original breaking through. And in some respects, I find that this kind of radical religious and spiritual thinking is more in evidence in some of the in some of the uh, the Christian theologians I read than in the people who write about Buddhism um, just to give you an example of this uh, this is um, uh, this is from the Anglican theologian uh, Don Cupid who I think is one of the great religious thinkers of our time um, but the Christian churches don't tend to agree <laughs> uh, he's, uh, he lives in Cambridge he's retired now uh, he, has, he's, he was a, a fellow of Emmanuel College Uh, This is a book he's just published. It's called The Great Questions of Life. He used to be published by SCM, which was one of the mainstream Christian presses in Britain. Uh, They dropped him a few years ago because they said he was giving them a bad name. (laughs) So he now is published by an obscure little outfit in Santa Rosa, California. And he's really rather unknown. This is Don Cupid's creed, or a creed, he calls it. He doesn't want to make it too definitive. I find I can agree with absolutely everything he says. Five points, I'll just read them out. Uh, if anyone's interested, I'll photocopy it and pin it on the board. True religion is your own voice, if you can but find it. True religion is in every sense to own one's own life. True religion is the pure solar, as in sun, affirmation of life in full acknowledgement of its utter gratuitousness its contingency its transience and even its nothingness true religion is productive value realising action in the public world faith is not a matter of holding on to anything faith is simply a letting go It floats free. Now, Cupid has been uh, quite explicitly influenced by Buddhist ideas, Um, but I find this kind of writing uh, very, very um, uh, affirming, and I greatly admire the kind of courage that such a man has. And in some ways, I feel that the spirit of Zen, as I've been outlining it, is more in evidence here. Uh, in this kind of thinking, uh, than in much of what passes for Zen, uh, which very much, in my experience, in the West, is about conforming to some kind of a traditional uh, form of practice and belief and so forth, albeit with the idea that this is a very iconoclastic tradition, remembering that iconoclastic tradition is probably an oxymoron. And I'll stop there. Um, what's the time? Uh, if I, 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 we've got half an hour before the next sitting. I, I can take a few questions, but I don't want to go on too long. Oh, good. Okay. Fine. <laughs> Thank you very much. We'll, we'll return here for the last sitting in half an hour. Thank you.